You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing today? Good? Okay. We're going to try this again, okay? Because some of you are are pretending like we didn't just sing songs to the creator of the universe just now. Uh, Some of you are pretending like uh, you're not in one of the best churches in Florida or in the nation. Um, Some of you are pretending like you live in West Virginia. So we're going to try this again. How are we doing today? Good? All right. Hey, like Pastor Bob said, my name is Caleb, and I am so happy to be here with you today. Can I just uh, ask you a question? Do you guys love Pastor Bob and the team here, the staff here? I mean, you've got a great church. Like, just to let you know, if I were visiting, like, if, if I lived in this area, like, this would be the church that I attend. This is a place where it's okay not to be okay. And we all gather together and we follow Jesus no matter where we are on the journey. So wherever you are, um, you know, if you're here and it's your first time, I'm really, really glad that you're here. Um, It's one of my first times, so we can be new together. And I hope that you keep on coming back, you know, kicking the tires, looking underneath the hood, because this is a place where, you know, you can be yourself and God can use you in extraordinary ways. Um, So there you go. Like uh, like, uh, Pastor Bob said, I live in uh, Southern California in the Los Angeles area. Um, My family and I, we live in California because we enjoy not having money. And um, (laughs) yeah, giving it to the state, it's just fantastic. Nothing brings me more joy. Um, I love it, no. But my wife's whole family, she is a muy caliente Latina, and her whole family is there, and we're not leaving anyway. All right, I've had my moment. I'm done. So um, we live there, and I have a 15-year-old son named Joel. I have a 13-year-old daughter named Rachel. And uh, my wife is a a Christian counselor. And uh, anyway, so we we are at a church that is very much kind of a sister church of this church called Shepherd Church in the the northwest area of the San Fernando Valley. So that's where I'm on staff at. And um, I want to start today uh, by making a statement. Now, I'm going to just probably say that this is a statement that you should make every single day of your life. I guarantee you that the majority of you, like 99% of you, are not going to like this statement. And the ones of you who say that you do, you're the 1% that's lying. Okay? I'm trying to teach my children to make this statement on a daily basis, and they don't like it. I don't blame them. I don't like this statement either. But if you can get used to making this statement, it will actually help you to become a mature Christian. How many of you know that maturity is not found in how much you know, but in the grace you show, and also in how we live our life, right? So I'm going to make this statement. Okay, you ready? Some of you look really, really nervous. You don't have to be that nervous. It's not like you're about ready to be run over by a train or anything. Or maybe you are. I don't know. Here's the deal. Here's a statement. I have participated in every bad decision that I've ever made. See? I knew it. Tension immediately. It's great. means we got to talk about it. I'm going to make this statement one more time because it's entertaining for me up here. You ready? 
I have participated in every bad decision that I've ever made. I'm going to make this statement for you because some of you don't look like you want to make it. So I'm going to make it for you. How about that? There's nothing more fun than when somebody else confesses your, your sins for you, right? Here we go. You have participated in every bad decision that you have ever made. How many of you believe that? Yeah, some of you are like, but you don't know this person did. You're right. I don't know. And I'm not saying that you were the author of everything that happened in that situation, but you co-signed on it. Now, are there situations where we have to live with the consequences of, of somebody else's bad decision? Absolutely there are. Not every negative consequence we experience is the result of our bad decisions. But I will be honest with you. I have looked back at a lot of my bad decisions. I was present for every single one. And I'm not saying other people weren't involved, but I at least co-signed it. And it's easier to push blame. How many of you know that like blame is like so easy? It's incredibly easy. I'm going to make another statement. Some of you may not believe this. I, I think it's true. I don't think that human beings make really good decisions on their own. Like, I, I just don't. I think people, on the average, make really horrible decisions. If you don't believe me, go to Miami Airport. <laughs> go to LAX, Los Angeles International Airport. I tell people all the time, I don't believe in purgatory, but if there was one, it would be LAX. That's what God would use. Seriously, people don't make good decisions. Get on a plane. I fly a lot. I'll give you an example. I fly a lot. I sit in the aisle seat. I like the aisle seat. You get to escape easier. You know, if something happens, when the plane lands, you can stand up. You're not, like, caught over here by the window. Some of you are like, I love the window. You love the window until it's time to get off the plane or until you have to use the bathroom. Then you're like, man, I wish I had the aisle. That's why I park in the aisle seat. So we get to cruising altitude on this flight about three or four years ago. This lady, a middle-aged lady, is sitting right next to me. Right when we reach cruising altitude, homegirl takes off her socks and shoes and starts clipping her toenails right next to me. It looked like a wood chipper with shards just going everywhere. I, I, things happen to me all the time. On my Instagram, I just have like loads of stories on there of things that have happened to me on airplanes. I usually don't say anything. I said something this time. I looked at her and I said, seriously? And she said, is this bothering you? And I said, yes. Your toenail is on my shoe. <laughs> I said it wasn't there a couple minutes ago. And she said, well, I guess I could do this when I get home tonight. And I said, let's go with that plan. I'm a big fan of that plan. As a matter of fact, that's when I cut my toenails. In all my years of marriage, my wife has never seen me clip my toenails once. And she's like, wow, I'll have to try that. People don't make good decisions. Now, some of you are like, oh, Caleb, you're out here handing out condemnation cards to everybody. I'll throw myself under the bus. I'll tell you another story so we're even. And then maybe you'll kind of buy into what I'm saying a little bit more so you don't feel like I'm just out here throwing out condemnation cards. I don't make good decisions on a regular basis. The, the state that I live in proves that, if anything else. I'm German. Germans don't make good decisions on a regular basis, okay? But here's the deal. Um, a few years ago, my wife, like, we're not, I'm not a big coffee drinker. She likes coffee. I'm not. But she also likes tea. So she gets all these different kinds of hot tea. And I, she got this new hot tea. And I just saw 
the hot tea there. It was like, wow, it's an interesting color. And I took a packet and drank it. And it was like really good. Usually I just have one cups. And I had two cups that morning because it was really good tea. And I get to my office and I'm sitting in meetings. And about 10 minutes into my meetings, I start sweating. Like I start getting like the meat sweats that you get after Thanksgiving dinner, if you know what I mean, where you have to put on your stretchy pants. And all of a sudden my stomach starts making noise. Do you ever see Alien with Sigourney Weaver? That's what I'm beginning to feel like. And I'm thinking, do I have food poisoning? And I rush to the bathroom. Literally that morning, I was in there four and a half hours. I didn't leave. And when I first got there, I was like, man, what, 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 what happened? I, I can't get out of And then I remembered the name of the tea. It was Smooth Move. Um, it was laxative tea. And I had two cups of the laxative tea. And by hour three, I was begging God to either make it stop or to take me. Whichever one came first. I didn't care at that point. And I called my wife and I asked her why she brought Satan's nectar into our house. And she's like, well, why didn't you read the, the instructions or what, was, what kind of tea it was? I said, you're missing the point. You're expecting me to take responsibility for my actions. That's not how this works, okay? I've got to have somebody to blame. You see, I think that people are regularly good at blaming individuals. Look at our society right now. We live in a society where I think this has always been true, but it's really been true as of the last five years. We live in a society that really overvalues feelings and reactions and undervalues logic and truth. When it's the, 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 the church leader and what we call the church father Augustine who, and I'm paraphrasing here, said that the mind and the will must never be opposed to each other. They must be together. And yet we live in a society where your feelings count more than your logic. And it's like, no, that's not how God created you. That's not how God created you to operate. I don't know about you, but I cannot remember a time when I have made a really good, emotionally reactive, impulsive decision. Like, I can't. And so how do we make good decisions? How do we make good decisions when we are tempted to do otherwise? How do we make good decisions when we are just tempted to go with how we feel instead of weighing what might happen? That's what I want to talk about today. And to do that, we're going to look at, um, we're, in just a moment, we're going to have the words on the screen, and we're not yet, but if you don't have your Bibles or your mobile devices, uh, it should be in your bulletin as well. If you're joining us online and you don't have any of that, you can just listen to what I'm going to say. And again, the words, and I'm going to read it to you, and the words are going to be on the screen in just a moment. But we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, David is the king. Now, if you don't know who David is, let me just tell you real quick. You probably heard of David and Goliath, right? Uh, short guy, you know, killing a big, mean guy with a rock. Yeah, that was, that was David, okay? David was, was like the original Cinderella, Right? He was anointed as king at a young age. His dad didn't think anybody would want to anoint him. The prophet Samuel comes to his house, anoints, you know, looks at David's brothers and says, no, the Lord hasn't blessed any of these. Do you have anybody else? Well, there's the one kid out with the sheep, but he's a little, uh, you know. You always know that there's like usually that one child in families where like 
you know, you'll be talking to somebody, how's your kids? You know, and they'll tell you, well, yeah, our three kids are well. And you're like, but you have four. How's the fourth one? Oh, he's out in the backyard staring at the sun, um, making a list of all the animals he can remember. Like, we all have cousins like that probably, right? And so they think this about David, and David is brought up, and David is anointed king, and people love David. It says that he has, you know, David and I have similar features. It says that he has rugged good looks. Um, wow, that's funny. How about that? Didn't know this was going to be a roast. Anyway... So, like, David, you know, grows up, and he becomes king, and, I mean, he, he is just fantastic, and people love him. He's the second king of Israel, and there's, there's this time when he is, uh, the Bible says that during the time when he's supposed, when kings are out fighting battles, he's staying at home. Now, some people say, well, David should have been out fighting battles, and if he had done that, the events of 2 Samuel chapter 11 would have never happened. And I don't think that we can be so harsh on David because maybe, just maybe, like Israel had become so powerful where, you know, his generals are like, you should stay at home. We don't want anything to happen to you. Things are going well. You need to keep your eye on things. And so um, we join David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Take a look at this. 2 Samuel chapter 11, 2 through 5. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. And so David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house and the woman conceived and so she sent and told David and said I am with child now let's just stop right there there's a lot to take in right here you see what what really kind of annoys me in this situation is that like in in many sermons that you may have heard on on David and Bathsheba there is so much emphasis placed on Bathsheba in some sermons more so than David and I'm like that's unbiblical I was talking to one of my friends they're like why is that unbiblical I'm like okay if if it's if it's biblical why is it that the biblical author of 2 Samuel really talks all about what David did wrong and not Bathsheba why is that then? And again, I'm not saying that Bathsheba didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, she shouldn't have cheated on her husband. I believe that's a sin. But put yourself in Bathsheba's situation. You are brought to the king's palace, arguably the most powerful leader in the world at that time, and it's obvious that he wants to sleep with you and we all want to say, yeah, you know, if I was her, that wouldn't happen. You don't know that. Peter also said, I would never, ever deny you, Lord. And what did he do? He denied it. Part of spiritual maturity is realizing that you, in and of yourself, you are capable of doing anything. And that's why you need Jesus so much. And yet, when you look at David here, David, obviously, is not being a good leader. David's walking around on the roof of his house. And I've read some commentaries where it's like, well, Bathsheba was bathing at a certain time of day when people, you know, like that, you know, she knew that the king would see her. How did she know that? 
You know what they would do? They would take a bucket of water, they would put it on the roof, and this bucket of water would be warmed by the sun all day. So in the evening, when people came home, they would go up to the roof of their house, and they would take a bath with the warm water, trusting that their king wasn't a creeper. (laughs) Walking around on the roof of the house like this, it's like, oh, she wanted David to see her. Do you know how many houses surrounded his, like where he was in the palace was the tallest point in Jerusalem. He could see everything. You're going to tell me that David wasn't looking for what he was looking for? Of course he was. He knew why he was on that roof. Again, you and I are responsible for every bad decision we have ever made. David is responsible for the bad decision that he has made. And he sees this woman. He asks his messengers about it. And they're like, hey, yeah, this is, uh, uh, you know, Bathsheba married to one of your, like, soldiers, right? He had an out right there. Does he take it? No. He sins for her. And you're not going to tell me she didn't feel pressure about that? And again, I'm not saying she didn't sin. Of course she did. But here's a question that I have for every single one of you. Because it's something that all of us have to face at some point in life and several times in life, okay? Here it is. Who do you become when you have the most power in the room? When you have the most authority, when people are listening to you more than they are listening to anybody else, who do you become? Because the fact of the matter is, no matter if you're a parent, a grandparent, if you're a manager, if you're a boss, if you own your business, if you don't own your business, if you're with a group of friends, we all have situations where we become, even for a moment, the most influential person in that moment And who we become in that moment says a lot about what we believe about God, about what we believe about people. And in this moment, David could have leveraged his power to protect Bathsheba and Uriah and that family. What did he do instead? He leveraged his power for his own gain. And of course, she becomes pregnant. And he has an out. He's able to actually change things. Here's what he does, though. Look at 2 Samuel 11 and 9. He sends for Uriah, brings Uriah back. He's really nice to him. Hey, love that you're back here. Tell me about the war. And Uriah's like, why are you sending for me? Why didn't you send for one of your generals? You know, why are you being so nice? He winds him. He dines him. He says, hey, why don't you go back home and sleep with your wife? He's trying to trick Uriah into sleeping with his wife so that Uriah won't know that uh, his, that like David got his wife pregnant, that his wife got pregnant apart from him. And yet, here's the integrity that Uriah has in 2 Samuel 11 and verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark like the Ark of the Covenant, the one that Indiana Jones found. The Ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my Lord Joab and all the servants of my Lord are encamped in open fields. Shall I then go down to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And David could have been honest there, but he's not. David says, stay one more night, and David gets him even more drunk, which I don't know if you know, but it was a sin for Uriah to get drunk. 
when all of its people were out on the battlefield. And yet David was using pressure again to pressure him and gets him drunk. Look at all the different sins that David is committing. Deceit, adultery, lying, pressuring people, exploiting people. And the second night, Uriah again does not go down to sleep with Bathsheba. He stays in the door of the king's palace. And so then David said, I only have one more option, which wasn't true. He actually writes a letter and seals it and says, give this to Joab the general. And basically the letter said, hey, when you get this, please in the next battle, put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle and then withdraw from him so he dies. And Joab was not the best person in the world. He probably was like, I wonder what's going on. I mean, he might have even known, but he's like, okay. But what shows Uriah's integrity is he has more integrity drunk than David did sober, but he's carrying his own death warrant and he has the integrity to trust the king and not even read it. And in verse 15, it says that that Joab set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and died. And that's what happened. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. If this were a miniseries, that would be the cliffhanger verse right there. Like David thinks everything's taken care of. He probably wasn't happy that he did that with Uriah, but he was so worried about covering his own tracks that he just thought God's not going to care. And it says that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so a couple months go by and David is ruling and, and things are going well. And then this prophet named Nathan shows up and this prophet Nathan, um, who regularly spoke for God, says, David, we need to talk And he's sitting down with David and he says, hey, so there's this one guy that has all these sheep and there's this other guy over here. He has like a little lamb. And the guy with all the sheep wanted this lamb and and ended up killing the lamb's master so that he could take this lamb from from him and so that he could have him despite the fact that he had all the sheep. And David's like, oh, we need to kill this guy. I mean, David is enraged. I mean, you want to talk about getting punked. And in this moment... I can just see Nathan extending his arm and his finger, his bony finger. I don't know why I say his bony finger, but I just figured Nathan was old because it seems like it. And it says in 2 Samuel 12, 7, he says, you are the man. Have you ever been caught in your sin? Have you ever been caught? Have you ever like thought you got away with it and then boom, it comes up? And you have to own what happened. And you didn't think you would. And you try to spin it, but you really can't spin it. In this moment, he knows, David knows, that he cannot spin it. And here's what Nathan says. 2 Samuel 12, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel before the son in other words what you do in private eventually is exposed 
in public, one way or another. Truth always wins. And this happened with his son, with David's son. Did exactly what Nathan said. And, and David says, I have sinned. Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. The Lord has not taken away the consequences. You see, here's the deal. When you believe in Jesus Christ, when you have a relationship with him, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 5.9 say that we will never experience the wrath of God because Jesus experienced the wrath of God for us on our behalf. But we will experience, according to Hebrews 13, his discipline. Because God doesn't always take away the consequences of our bad decisions. Sometimes he does, and he always has a reason. But many times he doesn't. And so how does this story, how does this narrative help us to make better decisions? What does that look like? I would say this. I want you to remember this principle. Temptation never keeps its promises. If you don't remember anything else that I've said today, please remember this. That temptation never keeps its promises. Temptation promises you the world, and then what happens? You don't get it. You feel exuberant momentarily, and then when you're done giving in, you can feel shame. You can feel guilt. You can think to yourself, man, I hope that nobody ever knows. I hope nobody ever finds out. I'll never let this happen again. And yet what happens as human beings, we keep on giving into temptation again and again and again. We know for, for you know, full well that temptation never keeps its promises, but yet we do it again. I mean, I think it was Einstein that said that's the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different outcomes. And yet we keep on doing it because somehow we're like, oh, temptation will keep its promises now. I can manage it. I can control the situation. Please, you can't even manage yourself. You can to an extent, but if you could fully manage who you are, you and I wouldn't need Jesus Christ in our life to live our life for us. There's a reason why we had to repent. There's a reason why Jesus included personal repentance in the Lord's prayer and, and, and paired it right along forgiveness. Forgive us our sins, Lord, as we forgive those who sin against us. I've found that the best forgivers are actually the best repenters. That the more that I repent in my life, it fuels the forgiveness I'm able to give other people. Temptation never keeps its promises. And again, 2 Samuel 12, 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And we get a bigger picture of the anguish and the emotion that David is feeling because he has not just committed adultery, okay? He has exploited people. He has misused his power. He has put his army, the army of Israel, into harm's way. He has lied, okay? He has broken rank within the military, okay? He has marginalized his wife, Michael. He has tried to cover things up. He has got the whole nation to believe in a lie, so on and so forth. It's not just one thing. So many people focus on this one thing, and yeah, that's a big thing. But look at all these other things that he did. And I think that there's a time when somebody holds up the mirror to us. It takes us a while to own it, and you see the anguish that he was feeling. We get a glimpse of it in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4 and verse 10. 
David writes to God, have mercy on me, O God. He wrote this when he was going through the anguish of owning what he did. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And again, God took away his sin, but he still endured the consequences. Okay? God is loving and compassionate, but God knows us better than we know ourselves. As a matter of fact, I want to read this verse for you right here, 2 Samuel 12, 13. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Let me say this again. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. This verse is not, I think, not only is talking about David. It foreshadows those of us who follow Jesus. Because we believe here at this church, and this is what I believe, that Jesus Christ died on, your, on the cross for your sins and for the sins of the people you like and for the sins of the people you don't like and for the sins of the people that vote differently from you? I know it's hard, right? It's like, well, did he though? I mean, I don't know if he died on the cross for uh, Patriot fans, but still. You know who that was directed at. I'm sorry, I just happen to be a fan of the greatest team in the NFL, the Kansas City Chiefs. Thank you. A couple of you are going to heaven, I see. Yeah. And for those of you who aren't cheering, um, just to let you know, Patrick Mahomes is a Christian. He gives away half of his income. He just became a Christian like 18 months ago. He gives away half of his income to kids in the foster system. He loves people. He's a Christian. You're going to be with him in heaven, or maybe you won't. I don't know. Um, but he's going to be there. And so you should be cheering for him. You like my rationale? Do you like how I spend things? It's fantastic. It works for me. My wife doesn't buy it at all, but it works for me. But we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And in one moment in time that became timeless, he took all of your sins and your shame and your bad decisions on his shoulders. And as 1 Thessalonians 1, 10 and 5, 9 say that he experienced the wrath of God on our behalf so that we would never have to. And yet when he rose on the third day, all of our sins and shame and, and bad habits and toxic hangups and so on were left dead in the grave, but he was raised in the newness of life. And so that when Jesus, when we believe in Jesus, God didn't see Jesus there. God saw us in his place. And now that we live, God sees his son in us. God doesn't just see us. So that yes, we do experience the consequences of, of our actions because God is a good and loving father, as opposed to what some of us have experienced in this room. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. I want you to write this down. Temptation never keeps its promises, but God is always faithful. Temptation never keeps its promises, but God is always faithful. There will never be a time in your life when God is not faithful to you. Not once. Temptation never keeps its promises, but God is always faithful. Faithful. 
Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Do you have redemption because Jesus died for you? And God longs to be compassionate with you. I told somebody this the other day. I was trying to explain God's grace in different ways. And I said, when you take one step towards God, he takes five steps towards you. God longs to be gracious to you and to love you. God doesn't want, he is not angry with you. He loves you deeply. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from the dead and works to serve the living God? You can be forgiven of whatever you have done because of what Jesus did for you. And so how do we, leave, how do we live this out? How do we live out this idea Temptation never keeps its promises. How do we make better decisions when we are confronted with temptations? It, it begins, I think, by owning what we've done in the past, by trying to make um, amends, kind of like what David probably had to do. And so when I have to own something, here are four questions that I ask myself, and hopefully these help you. Here are the four. What do I need to own? Who needs my apology? Who can walk with me, and how can I help others? What do I need to own? What is it that I need to repent of? What is it that's weighing me down? It doesn't mean you have to broadcast your repentance to the whole world, but maybe you need to repent and let one person know or confess to one person. Some of you, you haven't even repented to God. And I found that many times in my life where something would be weighing me down. I'm like, man, I haven't even repented to God. And I have to do that. Number two, who needs my apology? Who have I hurt? Who have I not forgiven? Who am I bitter against? And sometimes there are some people that are so toxic that it's probably better that we don't talk to them. And those are few and far between. But you can still ask God's forgiveness if you treated them in horrible ways. I'm not saying just ways, I mean horrible. Because hear me out on this. This is one, another thing that I try to tell students when I speak to students, my kids, but also students. Okay? Here's the deal. Just because somebody oppressed you does not give you the right to oppress them. Because then in a sick and twisted way, you become just like the people that hurt you. You are imitating them more than you are imitating Christ. Christ is the one who hung on a cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. We're the ones who say, Father, forgive them, except for her and him. This is not how it works. And by the way, when you become a Christian, you and I don't have the luxury of choosing who we forgive or not. We have to forgive. If you're in Jesus, you don't have a choice. You have to love people, and you have to forgive. If some of you aren't Christians, that might be a good reason not to become a Christian. Because we are commanded to forgive. Now, you are not always commanded to reconcile, because I think that reconciliation depends on repentance. But forgiveness is about freeing yourself from the bitterness that you have within your heart. That's why you can forgive somebody that's dead. Because you're letting yourself free from the prison of bitterness that you walled up 
around yourself. And again, there's some people that have hurt you and they're dangerous. And yeah, you shouldn't be in a relationship with them. And those are few and far between, but you have to forgive. Who can walk with me? Who can help me navigate this difficult terrain so I don't fall into the same cycle or pattern? And then how can I help others? How can God leverage what I've been through to help somebody else? Just like somebody walked with me, how can God use this to walk so I can walk with somebody else? And you see, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you look like. I don't care if you cheer for the Raiders or not. Hear me out on this, okay? God can still use you, okay? You look at the genealogy of Jesus, which was the resume in, in the book of Matthew chapter 1. You look at that, and David is in there, and Bathsheba is in there. Despite poor decisions, God used them. And Matthew 1.17 says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. By the way, you know in Hebrew and Greek, every single letter has a numeric value. Do you want to know the numeric value of David's name in Hebrew? It's 14. And, and I think that verse 17, Matthew is writing primarily to Jewish people. I think verse 14, he was making the point that David is the center of this. And all throughout the book of Matthew, people call Jesus more than any other title, son of David. Look, if God can use David after all that, how much more can he use you? Real quick before we close. Um, some of you know this, some of you don't. That I was raised in a community, unlike some others. When I was, uh, when I was two, my parents divorced. Both of them entered same-sex relationships after they divorced. And my dad never had a monogamous partner. He had friends, but my mom was in a 22-year relationship with a psychologist named Vera. My dad was a professor at the University of Missouri-Columbia and Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri. My mom and Vera moved to Kansas City. I went back and forth. I was raised in the LGBTQ community. I was raised to believe that Christians hated uh, LGBTQ people. My mom regularly told me, when I was little, if you, if you are not like them, they will not like you. They raised me when I was a kid. They took me to clubs and bars and campouts and pride parades and all these different things. And when I was 16, I hated Christians. And I joined a Bible study to learn how to, um, you know, to pretend to be a Christian. I was going to dismantle the Bible study. That turned out real well, as you can tell. Um, it was a great decision. Probably actually the best decision I've made. And so I went and I realized that God is not like that. And I gave my life to Jesus. And I came to the conclusion. I came to the conclusion. Two conclusions that I still hold today. One is that I believe that God designed sexual intimacy to be expressed in a marriage between a male and a female. But I also believe that a theological conviction is never a catalyst to devalue another human being. That if what you believe allows you to marginalize and mistreat other people, I don't know what Frankenstein version of Jesus you're following, but it's not the Lord that I follow. 
It's not the Lord that pursued you back when you didn't even like God. And so I had to come out to my three gay parents as a Christian when I was 16 and they kicked me out. And I ended up coming back. Eventually they let me back in. I went to go be a pastor. Moved from Missouri to L.A. back in 1999 when that was still cool to do. Moved to California. And so like I was in Texas for like three and a half years preaching in a church because everybody's got to live in purgatory at one point. And when I was there... Like my parents separately of one another moved down there to be closer to our family, started attending the church I was preaching at, even though they knew what I believed. And at the ages of 69 and 70, they gave their lives to Jesus Christ and trusted him as their Lord and Savior. So please do not tell me that it is too late for you, that it's too late for somebody else. You are underestimating the God not just of second chances, but the God of infinite chances. Temptation, it never keeps his promises, but you can trust this. God is always faithful. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you so much for today. I pray, Lord, that as we continue with our service, that you would remind us of your loving kindness, that if there are people in this room, if there are some of us we need to forgive, we need to let go, I pray that we would. If we need to repent of something, whether it's bitterness or something we've done or something we've said or the way we treated somebody, I pray that you would start bringing conviction to our heart in your loving and gracious way that you do convict us. And Lord, for those of us in here who do not identify as a Christian, we're not following Jesus, I pray that that people here would take one step closer to Jesus in whatever way that looks like. If they have questions, that they would contact the church this week, they would talk to somebody today. I pray, Father, that you would help them to see that the best decision they could ever make is the name Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.